Well, this morning we're going to be continuing our study through the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter. If you're using the Pew Bibles in front of you, you can find that on page 980. working through this wonderful epistle over the course of this summer. And this morning, we'll be looking at verses 3 through 12, which is his first long introductory sentence. It's one sentence in the original Greek. They loved run-on sentences. And so we'll go ahead and read 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12. And after reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and encourage you to respond. Thanks be to God. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power unto, until the coming salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith the salvation of your souls. Well, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels want to look into these things. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. George Orwell once wrote, If liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. If liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. Now, it would be an overstatement to say that George Orwell's statement and definition uh, are so being realized in our time that there is no hope of liberty and freedom. But I think we can all say we've heard many of stories where the ability to tell people what they do not want to hear is and has been being threatened. An example from 2002 recorded in D.A. Carson's book, The Intolerance of Tolerance, um, there was a, uh, author, Michael Holbeck, is one of France's most respected contemporary writers. Well, in 2002, he was taken to court by four leading Muslim bodies in France. And the charge was that he had made racial insults and he had incited religious hatred. Well, what had he done to deserve these charges? Well, in a magazine review, he made some derogatory comments about Islam. He dismissed Islam as, quote, the dumbest religion and unfavorably compared the Quran with the Bible. He said the former, the Quran, is poorly written, while the Bible is, quote, at least beautifully written because the Jews have a heck of a literary talent. You see, in the, course, in the court case that followed, several prominent French intellectuals defended Holabek, saying, look, we have to be able to have free speech. But there were not a few who sided the other way. And it was the influential Human Rights League that actually accused him of Islamophobia for these comments. Whereas many writers insisted 
that he was so vulgar, he was not even worth defending. Well, one person who did decide to defend him was columnist Salman Rushdie. He wrote in The Guardian this. He says, if an individual in a free society no longer has the right to say openly that he prefers one book to another, then that society no longer has the right to call itself free. I mean, presumably, any Muslim who said the Quran was better than the Bible would also be guilty of insult, and absurdity would rule. As to the dumbest religion comment, Rushdie says, well, that's a point of view. And Holobeck, in court, made the simple but essential point that to attack persons' ideologies or belief systems is not to attack them as people. This is surely, Rushdie writes, the foundation of an open society. Citizens have the right to complain about discrimination against themselves, but not about dissent, even strongly worded or impolite dissent, about their thoughts. What did Orwell say? If liberty means anything, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. Well, we can make many, many more cases. One of them was actually more recently in the last 10 years, a student at Modesto Junior College in California was denied the right to hand out copies of the U.S. Constitution on Constitution Day because the free speech zone, which was explained as that little concrete area out there, was already booked that day. The next opening was several days hence after Constitution Day and hence defeating the purpose. On and on we could go with examples. But I bring these up for this. Because the tendency can be for me to tell stories like that, and I could give you long lists of them, to just be really depressed, to be overwhelmed, to have this thought of we, we've lost our society, the world is, is going to Hades in a handbasket, as the saying would go. But friends, for Christians, optimism is naive, yet pessimism is atheistic. As Christians, we don't have the right to get so overwrought with the situations and the things going on in society that it just weighs on us. Because while optimism is naive, hope is anything but naive. And First Peter has rightly been called the letter of hope. But the hope that Peter is going to teach us about has nothing to do with First Amendments. It has nothing to do with the kingdoms of this world. No, Peter opened this letter by referring to Christians as exiles. That is people who will never be able to find their hope, their, their comfort here in this world, in this place. No, Peter is calling us to find our hope somewhere else. So this morning, our sermon title is Exiles of Hope. And the title feeds into the argument of this sermon, which is this. God's salvation, past and future, is worthy of praise, even while suffering as exiles. One more time. God's salvation, past and future, is worthy of praise, even while suffering as exiles. And we will walk through this passage under those three points you see on the board. Well, first, praising God's salvation. Look again at verses 3 through 5 with me. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Well, again, I mentioned this whole verse here, or one sentence in the Greek, verses 3 through 12, is one big, long, complicated sentence. But verse 3 summarizes the main point of this sentence for us. Peter is praising God or blessing God for salvation, for the salvation that God has wrought in Christ. 
And he specifically praises him for an aspect of salvation when he says, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth, the, the NIV translates it. I prefer the ESV. It says he has caused us to be born again. And the reason why is because it's a verb. There, there's nothing here in Peter that could possibly be understood as the new birth being something simply offered to people. No, it's a, a work of God. It's a verb that God does. He causes people to be born again according to his mercy. This is God's action. But now, many Christians, though, down through the years, would argue that it was their act of faith that causes God to cause them to be born again. Now, there are many dear Christians in this room who I love and treasure who would want to advocate for that view, that faith is what actually causes God to cause us to be born again. The difficulty, though, is I have yet to find any verse in the Bible that actually teaches that order. But I think where it comes from is actually John 3.16. Uh, you probably know the verse, but it'd be worthwhile to turn back to John 3.16. Because part of the thing is, is we tend to hear certain verses, and those verses become lenses that we read our Bibles through. And since most Christians read and learned this verse at a very young age, that's kind of what's happened here. John 3.16 is on page 862, if you're using those pew Bibles. But you probably know the verse. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What a wonderful verse of hope. But I hope you see what the verse actually doesn't say. Notice, the verse doesn't say anything about regeneration, about being born again. It's referring to end-time salvation, right? It says it quite plainly. All the believing ones, is literally what it says in Greek, all the believing ones are those who will not perish, but have eternal life. That's not referring to regeneration. That's referring to the last day, right? To salvation. On the last day, there's only two options. You'll either perish or have eternal life. And all the believing ones will have eternal life. So unfortunately, this verse has often used to say, no, see, faith, our belief, happens before being born again. But that's just not what the verse is saying. And as a matter of fact, if you actually look in context, what you'll see is Jesus says something that makes that interpretation impossible. Look back at John 3, 1. So the first verse of that very chapter. I wish we had more time to dig into this, but we'll see this is how Jesus explains this idea of regeneration or being born again that Peter is referring to. I'll read the first five verses. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Well, pause there for a moment. Notice, Nicodemus shows up and he says to Jesus, we know some things about you. But Nicodemus is all by himself. He's using that royal we. In other words, he's assessing Jesus. He's showing up and saying, well, Jesus, I'm a part of the ruling council. In, in Greek, it's hadadaskalos to Israel. He's the teacher of Israel. He's the grand mufti, the regis professor, as it were. And he says, and Jesus, we have some thoughts about you. We think you're rather special. But we need to do some more evaluating. We do. You get the sense? Nicodemus is there to suss, suss Jesus out. But look at Jesus' response in verse 3. He's like, Nicodemus... 
uh, you're never going to see the kingdom of heaven until you're born again. Now, that doesn't seem to follow at all. What does that have to do with assessing Jesus? Well, that's the whole point. Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And Nicodemus shows up and says, oh, I'm, I'm here to evaluate you, Jesus. To which Jesus says, you can't evaluate me. You can't even see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. Now, Nicodemus doesn't get it, and he assumes born again is physical, because his response is, how is that possible? An old man can't go back into his mother's womb. So Jesus repeats his same thing. You cannot see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born of water and spirit. And then he goes on in the next verses to explain, you have to have a spiritual rebirth, Nicodemus. Not, not physical, no, but a spiritual. Look at verses 6 through 8, you'll see. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Do you see what Jesus just said? You have no causal relationship with your spiritual birth. You see only its effects. I've never met anybody who says they control the wind. I mean, unless it's like a teenager being sarcastic with a fan. Nobody would dare to say they control the wind. But they see its effects. And that's what Jesus says. Do you want to know what the spiritual birth is like, Nicodemus? When you see its effects, you know it's taken place. God causes people to be born again according to his great mercy. That's what Peter says. You can flip back to, to Peter, and we'll look more closely at what Peter says at this same exact thing. But the point is, is that God is not waiting on someone else's permission to work and save and cause someone to be born again. We have no causal relationship. We don't cause wind to blow. We see its effects. And so Peter praises God for what he does. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So you see, many dear Christians have unintentionally used John 3.16 as a lens to mute what Jesus and Peter and others say about the new birth. They're quite clear. This is God's cause alone. And nobody causes God to be a cause. Now, we see the after effects of what God has caused. And then we understand that this one has been born again. Now, maybe you're continued to be unconvinced. That's fine. God bless you. I would encourage you, though, don't just sit on your tradition. Don't just trust in what you've inherited. Go back to the text. I'll even give you a list of texts that are used to argue that faith comes first. And you'll see they all do exactly what John 3.16 does. They're speaking about the fact that faith is necessary for eternal life. Yes, and amen, hallelujah. Peter's going to go on to say that exact same thing. But Peter is praising God for causing people to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, not through our faith. Faith comes later, and it's how our inheritance is secured, as we'll see. But only God can make the dead come alive. The dead don't ask God to make them come alive. So God works in his way. And he works and saves and brings about this inheritance. So the first thing he praises God for is that God causes us to be born again to a living hope and to an inheritance that can never perish. That's really important. This language of inheritance is used throughout the Old Testament to speak of the promised land. But what happened with the promised land? It was an inheritance that perished, that spoiled, that faded, right? They got into the land, and their sin was able to unwind the inheritance that God promised. But Peter says the inheritance that God gives to those whom he has caused to be born again is not that kind of inheritance. 
is an inheritance that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. Why? Well, because God says it's, it's kept in heaven for us. Which is to say this, friends. God causes people to be born again to an internal inheritance, and that means we cannot ever lose this inheritance and this new life that God has given us. God does not miss. He doesn't accidentally make someone be alive and then they lose it again. No, they're made alive to a living hope. So no matter what we do with the warning passages in the Bible that we have to wrestle through, whoever experiences the new birth that God causes can never lose their salvation. That's what he says. That's Peter's point. And that's why he's blessing God, because unlike this old covenant inheritance that could be lost, the new one can't. God is working And so much so in verse 5, look again at verse 5, what he says, those who believe through faith are shielded by God's power. So even our necessary faith, which we must have, which is the means God uses to ensure that we receive this eternal inheritance, even that is shielded by God's power. Peter is praising God because salvation from first to last, from the new birth to the new Jerusalem, is all God's doing. Jesus cannot fail to save those for whom he died. That's what he says in John 6, 44. All the Father draws to me are the exact same ones that I will raise up. If the Father draws them, Jesus raises them up. That's what John 6, 44 says. But this raises an important piece of application then. Because there's some here this morning, maybe you come from a tradition that would argue that we can't have that total assurance, that total security in our salvation. Uh, Maybe this has even led you to seasons of doubt and worry. Am I really saved? Or or maybe this has led to other seasons where you're feeling really rather good about your walk with the Lord. And so it might lead you towards patterns of self-righteousness, of confidence in your ability to keep yourself in through your faith. Well, friends, if you've experienced either one of those things, I hope you're looking closely and carefully at what Peter says because he's praising God for the absolute assurance that he has in salvation because salvation is God's work of salvation. And he praises God for the salvation that's both now already experienced, but then also for this not yet element of salvation. We've already been those who are born again to a living hope, but we have not yet fully tasted of that inheritance, as we've said. Well, as we see later in this letter, Peter will clearly spell out the fact that our obedience, our faith, and trust in God are necessary. But he could not be any clearer that our faith is even shielded by God. We are kept by him. So Tom Schreiner is exactly right when he says, there is no salvation apart from continuing faith. However, God's protection cannot be kept in a separate compartment from our believing. We must believe and trust and hope in Christ. That is necessary. But just as God causes the new birth, so too he causes our faith and hope. He fortifies believers so that they persist in faith and hope until the day of our inheritance. Which raises another question. Friend, have you experienced the new birth? See, notice what's missing. If if you've grown up in modern kind of American Christianity, notice what's missing from Peter's sentence. There's nothing here about saying a prayer. There's nothing here about walking an aisle. There's nothing here about church traditions and practices, about going to confession or absolution. No, Peter sees everything hanging on this question. Have you experienced the new birth? Can you join with Peter in declaring the praise for God causing you to be born again? 
Do you know that your inheritance is kept in heaven for you and that even your faith is shielded by God? Do you have that confidence, friend? One theologian put it well. He that is born again considers the favor of God as absolutely necessary to his comfort. He sees the emptiness and inherent vanity of all things else. Even when the world smiles, even when things succeed with him to his wish, he will not rest satisfied with temporal mercies. He will, above all, desire an interest in that love which God bears to his chosen people. So friend, does that describe you this morning? Is your hope and joy and comfort found in the God who has made you alive in Christ and given you an eternal inheritance? Friend, that does not define you this morning. If you're lacking confidence, drink deeply of Peter's words here. And, And ask someone sitting next to you, or I'd love to speak with you afterwards about how you can come to confidence and knowing that you have been born again from the work of God. Well, that is the first point, praising God's salvation, the salvation God works from first to last. And that now brings us to the second point, is that God has assured us of this future inheritance and hope. And so that means we're able to rejoice through our suffering. Let's look at verses 6 through 9. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, it may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So again, this is still part of that one sentence, and Peter's going to double-click on, as it were, or press into in all this, that is, in this salvation that God has wrought perfectly in Jesus' past, but which has future elements of this inheritance that we're still hoping on, because of that reality, Peter says God's people are able to rejoice even in the midst of suffering. In other words, Peter shifts from the certainties of their future, their salvation and hope, and he shifts to the present realities, uh, that unfinished part of salvation that we do not yet partake of. And he shifts from praise that is to be given to God to joy that we have even in the midst of sufferings because he sees those sufferings as a pathway to godliness, as a pathway, we would say, to that final salvation. So on the road between now and then, sufferings is the the road that God is using to prepare his people for that eternal salvation. And Peter pictures then our daily lives as overflowing with praise for what Jesus accomplished. And now he pictures this life of joy, spent pondering what Christ has done. You might put it this way, our lives are to orbit around what God has done for us and what he's doing in us. And then we can see how even in the midst of those dark and hard seasons, those are a means of God growing us, sanctifying us, preparing us. It is through those trials of life that we are prepared for that eternal life that John 3.16 speaks of. And we know this is the case because of the purpose clause there in verse 7. So these have come, these trials have come, so that purpose clause, this is God's purpose in the trials, so he purposed them, so that the proven genuineness of your faith, 
of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. In the mystery of God's providence, the sufferings of this life are somehow included and used as God's plan for preparing us. But if we're being honest with ourselves, I think that we would all admit we have many days where we fail to see the sufferings and trials of this life as means that God is using in our lives. Do we not? I mean, such as the busyness of our modern lives, we are easily distracted by so many things. Uh, We can spend days without really pondering the joy of our salvation that Peter's talking about here. We can be far more captivated by a new show or a hobby, a new business venture, investment, all sorts of other things. But it's always about when those sufferings and trials come that those things start to show their emptiness, their vanity. Now, of course, we'd never be so crass as to say we worship any of these other things in our life that we fill our lives with. But friends, what consumes our energy? I mean, even really good things, working to provide for your family, family relationships, friendships, ministry, even those things can subtly become the things that we really hope in, that we really bank on until bad days come. And then those things seem to drift away. You see, we put the very distracted nature of our lives together with this fact that our life is often filled with seasons of sorrow and suffering. And it becomes easy to see why Peter's words can seem so foreign to us. Why we can read past them all the time and yet miss the teeth of what he's saying here. I mean, it's hard enough to remember and meditate on the glories of salvation on normal busyness, let alone in dark seasons, is it not? So what we must remember here, though, is that Peter is writing not to a bunch of detached individuals. Every word here is in the plural. So this is the problem we have as individual Bible readers. We read of of rejoice and suffering, and we think, okay, great, I'm rejoicing and suffering. Eh." Uh, But Peter's writing to y'all rejoice and suffering. It's y'all's faith will result in praise and glory in Christ when he is revealed. And you all are to rejoice and be joyful. So in other words, he's teaching us that the way we find joy and the way we find in the midst of seasons of suffering, God working in us and through us, is by walking with other members in a local church. We need other voices from outside of ourselves to speak into our lives. So members of Bethany, we must be those who seek to rejoice in salvation of the Lord, but there's going to be times when you can't do that by yourself. So that's why you need help of others. Uh, While sanctification is personal, I have to be an individual growing in holiness. Sanctification is not individualistic. It's not something I do alone. It's worked out in the community of the saints in a local church. So, members of Bethany, is that true of us? Are we growing in this communal element of rejoicing in and through suffering? And Lord willing, that is what the community groups have begun to do in your life, to create spaces where this is being lived out. I know I'm certainly grateful for how I see this working out in our community group. We walk with each other and share with each other the sufferings and sorrows of life and the rejoicings of life. And that's a good reminder that if if you're here and you're not yet a member and you have not been plugged into a community group, I want to encourage you to do so. There's a large part of the life of this church that you will miss out on if you stay in the outsides. We are to be woven into each other's lives. And so I'd encourage you to grab Pastor Jeff after the service and see how you can take steps for membership and for involvement in community groups. Well, back to our passage. Peter is calling us to rejoice in God's salvation even through seasons of suffering because they refine us 
And I just like to remind us that Peter's call here is not one that he was unfamiliar with. You can go back and read about it in Acts 5. The second time when Peter and the apostles were arrested. The first time they were arrested, they were threatened and let go. But the second time they were arrested, they were beaten. Do you remember their response in Acts 5, 41? It says, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So here is that same Peter, years and many sufferings later, writing to these Christians. And he's saying to them, learn to trust and to press in to suffering. Because that's the means God will use to grow you. And his letter will go on to detail all sorts of specific suffering. So we'll circle back to this theme in the weeks ahead. But friends, here he just says any kind of grief and suffering is a means that God is using to continue to refine us. If gold must be refined with fire and gold can perish, he says, how much more does our faith, which cannot perish, need to be refined? So Peter here is arguing that God's purpose to work in and through people's sufferings, to refine them and prepare them to see Jesus at his second coming. But what about for those of us who haven't been eyewitnesses like Peter was? Well, that's what verses 8 and 9 get into. Look at 8 and 9 again. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So again, Peter, this eyewitness, is writing to a bunch of people who have not yet seen him. And so maybe their faith could be shaken by the fact that I'm in the midst of all these sufferings, but I didn't see him. I didn't get to handle him like you did, Peter. How how can we have this confidence in the midst of suffering when we didn't physically see him? And Peter is able to say, but notice, you are actually able to have inexpressible and glorious joy. Why? Verse 9 tells us the reason. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of our souls. Which is to say that that final goal, that final inheritance, that final salvation is already being brought into time, and we're already tasting of its reality. We are those who partake of the glories of salvation. A salvation, an inheritance that Peter's made clear, cannot be lost. It's imperishable. But that raises the important question. Is that true for us? I mean, are we those who are, maybe not every second of every day, but are we those who are at least regularly filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy over what Jesus has done and over an anticipation of his return? In his book, God is the Gospel, John Piper writes this. The critical question for our generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, with all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, and all the physical pleasures you've ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Notice that question. I think so often we think that joy is found in situations rather than in a person. So maybe you're visiting this morning and you're not a Christian. Maybe you've heard a great deal about Christianity You've heard that it's very moralistic, there's a lot of rules to follow, and of course, Peter will speak to all those things, yes. But I hope you see the way Peter frames this entire sentence. He's praising God for a salvation that Christ has won and a relationship with Jesus. 
Everything for Peter hinges on this relationship for him. You haven't seen him, but you know him. And Peter sees as the central issue, do you know Jesus? As the old hymn says, is he all that thrills your soul? Friend, I submit to you that until you meet Jesus in the pages of Scripture, until you come to know him as Savior, Redeemer, and friend, Christianity will never make sense. But I wonder if you can't picture it. Because how many of us have had relationships with somebody that made us willingly and joyfully reorient our whole lives? I think most married people would say there's some sense of that, where you were happy to reorient your whole life. Maybe it was with the birth of a child, where maybe you weren't always happy to not sleep all night long, but you willingly did so. Or maybe it was a dear friend or family member that caused you to say, no, my schedule has now changed because of this person and because I love this person. Or whomever that person was, there was something that meant so much to you that thrilled you, and so you bent your life around them. That's what Peter is saying here is Christianity. It's those who've come to truly be captivated by Jesus, to love and trust him so much that we'll joyfully bend our lives around his. So again, friend, if you're visiting this morning and you're not a Christian, our, our first and central aim is to introduce you to Jesus. And there are many people here this morning who would love to demonstrate what it means to love and trust the one they have not yet seen, but who they have seen him work in and through his people, in his people's loving each other and serving each other. And they've met him in his word and they've seen him and they've been transformed by him. Well, friends, if, if you'd be interested in talking more after the service, I'd love to tell you more and introduce you to Jesus. Because that's what Peter's doing here. He's praising God for the salvation that Jesus has wrought for his people. A, a salvation that is assured and eternal because it comes with an inheritance that can never be lost. And, and we're so to rejoice and to be overjoyed in the midst of this salvation that even in seasons of suffering and trial, that we are able to hope in the return of our king and seeing him again. Well, I've been arguing God's salvation, past and future, is worthy of praise even while suffering as exiles. And Peter's going to close out this long sentence with a special focus on how this future promise of salvation was searched for in the past. So searching past and future. Look at verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. So once again, Peter is still referring to salvation because he starts, verse 10, concerning this salvation. He's still on that same theme. This is still part of that long sentence. And Peter explains that Jesus' sufferings and glories were prophesied about in the Old Testament. But if they were prophesied about in the Old Testament, then why didn't anybody get it? Well, let's have a little bit of historical background to answer that question. The Jews, after the dispersion, after Daniel's day, they would read the prophets, and they came to see that there were two ages. There was this age, and then there was the age to come. 
And the age to come, if you work through the prophets really carefully, was going to be defined as the age of the Spirit, as the age of the resurrection, as the age of Messiah's return and his rule, throwing off all other kingdoms and emperors and him setting up his eternal kingdom. For most Jews, that's the way they understood the age, this age and the age to come, that all those things were going to be the, the big break that, that caused the change. And so, for example, you read certain prophecies, and if that's the grid you're using, you'll see it makes perfect sense. Think of Daniel 2. Uh, there's this, God gave the Babylonian king who conquered Israel and destroyed Jerusalem in the temple, this vision. And he gives him a vision about these kingdoms that will come, and there's going to be three more kingdoms that will come until finally. An uncut stone is going to come and fall from heaven and, and destroy the kingdoms of the world, right? So you can understand why many Jews of those days would say, we're waiting for this age to end, for the return of the Messiah, for the resurrection, for the spirit, for, for the king to come and rule. Well, the problem though is when you put that together with all those other prophecies, it seems like it was pretty clear. Messiah was going to come and win that's why they came to Jesus, like Nicodemus at night, like we saw. He came to see, are, are you the one? I mean, we think you're pretty special, but are you the one we've been waiting for? Are you going to throw off Rome? Are you going to free us from all these things? Well, once it became clear that Jesus was not intending to throw off Rome, they rejected him and conspired to murder him on a cross. So in other words, notice the Jewish leaders had essentially declared Jesus didn't fit the prophetic paradigm. He wasn't the king they wanted or expected. To use Peter's language, they only saw the glories that would follow, but they did not pay attention to the passages about the suffering Messiah. So in this letter, Peter's going to go on to make a big deal about showing that Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Well, that background is key for a couple reasons. First, as a practical point of application, is that friends... May we ever be so humble as to think that we might not, like the people in Jesus' day, have a paradigm, have a lens that we show up to Scripture with, and we read it, and it causes us to miss things. None of us are infallible interpreters. Uh, so we're all going to have those things that we just miss when we read through the Bible. Like they missed the fact that the Messiah was going to suffer and die as a substitute for his people. So it should cause us to be humble and to always be resubmitting our ideas back to the text. But another thing about this that this should show us is that these old prophets, Peter's point of driving these old prophets and bringing them up, is that they were making careful inquiry of their work, and they realized they weren't actually serving themselves. They were serving you. And notice, Peter says, you who haven't seen Jesus. That's really important. Because the point is this, is that the age that had to come with the Spirit and the resurrection and the Messiah had come in Jesus. He really was the one who brought in the resurrection age and he brought the spirit and only after he ascended and sent the spirit to the people so that way they could now go back and read the Old Testament and see all the places that were always speaking about Jesus all along. That's what Peter says. That's why he has that really interesting little phrase there in verse 12. It says, those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. So God was able to tell a story in the Old Testament and keep parts of it Veiled? Hidden? Uh, the word that the New Testament authors use is oftentimes mystery. And then once the Holy Spirit was revealed, who came from Jesus, who came and brought the resurrection age with him, and who sent the Spirit, that caused you to go back and reread and rethink and re-understand. So Peter says to those who he is writing, the age of the Spirit has come. 
That's why he can say you're already tasting of your salvation. You're already experiencing the resurrection life. You're spiritually resurrected in Christ. He's caused you to be born again. You're already tasting of the Holy Spirit. You're, you're, you're hearing his fruits in the word that's been preached to you. Do you see how Peter is showing how all of time and all of the Bible is bending around the cradle, the cross, and the crown of Jesus? He's bringing all of time to bend around him. And he's telling people to praise God for that and to rejoice in it. Well, let me get a point of application here. Peter's drawing everything back here to the Holy Spirit being so key to their understanding and how the prophets were pointing ahead to this age of the Holy Spirit. It's important for us to remember that this is why we believe that God does his work through his word. Peter says that they heard the gospel preached by the Holy Spirit. So they clearly didn't have the Holy Spirit there preaching. The Holy Spirit was using preachers of the word to make the word come alive about Jesus. And Paul says something similar in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. He writes of how they heard the gospel preached and they accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. The reformers made a great deal out of this in many of their passages. The second Helvetic confession put it this way. When the word of God is preached in the church by preachers lawfully called we believe that the very word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful. Or as the little motto has said, the preached word of God is the word of God. That seems to be what Peter says. You heard the gospel preached by the Holy Spirit. So when the word is rightly preached to God's people, God's people hear God speak. But that should make a couple points of application for us then. First, for those members of Bethany who engage in teaching and preaching the word, we should do so with much fear and trembling. Uh, to teach the Bible is to stand up and say, thus says the Lord. And so that should make our knees knock. It should drive us to continual prayer and study so that we would be those who rightly handle the word of truth. We should take passages like James 3, let not many of you be teachers, for we will incur a stricter judgment it should make us take those texts very seriously. So to my fellow Bible teachers here, pray earnestly for the Holy Spirit's help in your study, for him to speak to you through the word. Because apart from him working in you and through you, we can be a great harm to God's people. And a second point of application is for everybody else. Friends, do you regularly pray for the ministry of word here at Bethany? God does his work through his word by the Holy Spirit, working through people teaching and preaching the word. So do you make it a habit? I encourage you, pray for the regular preaching of God's word here. Pray for community groups where the Bible's being discussed and applied. Pray for Bible studies for the men's and women's. Pray for Sam and the youth. Pray for all those serving in the children's ministry. We believe God does his work through his word. And God uses means to accomplish his ends. So we should be those praying that God would use his word in the lives of his people. Well, let me draw this to a close by looking at the last line of this sentence. There's so much more here we could see, but we've tried to drive through the, the main thrust of Peter's argument here of praising God for this sure salvation in Christ, even in the midst of sorrows and sufferings, or we should be able to rejoice because we have such confidence in him. And then he closes this sentence with a rather interesting phrase. Even angels long to look into these things. Have you ever thought about that? How long do angels live? Any takers? Let me put it another way. Has there been anything the angels haven't seen? I mean, they were there from the beginning. They saw God make Adam. They saw God form Eve. They, they saw the serpent. And they saw the fall. 
And they've seen every step of redemptive history along the way. What is it that they long to look into? They've seen it all. Well, what's important is this. Even though angels have been around from the beginning, they don't partake of salvation. I mean, that's what Peter's been blessing God for and praising God for, this salvation. And they've seen it, but they don't understand it. They see the details, but they have no experiential knowledge of it. I mean, you can almost hear them questioning, can you not? Longing to wrap their heads around this unthinkable idea. How could the Creator suffer and die for the creature? God be done with those miserable people. The culmination of Peter's praise in this sentence then is to call our attention to the fact that these superior beings who have watched the whole thing play out across the ages are still baffled by it. The Greek word there says, it speaks of them stooping over and longing to look into and understand and perceive this salvation that Peter has been praising God for. Let me illustrate it another way. Have you ever experienced something that at first just took your breath away until it didn't? Uh, my freshman year of college, I went to the University of Colorado in Colorado Springs for a year. And Colorado Springs is where Pikes Peak is. Pikes Peak, you know, from America the Beautiful. Oh, purple mountains, majesty. Well, I can tell you, as having lived there for a year, that is so true. Uh, the way that Colorado Springs is, is said is on the west, you have Pikes Peak, which towers, and then there's a big valley, and then there's a bluff. And the school was right on the edge of the bluff. And so that meant that every single morning, anywhere time I walked to and from class, the purple mountains majesty just hovered over me. And as someone who's a skier, and I, I loved it. So I remember just loving to walk by and to see this glorious mountain until I'd seen it a lot. And then it had lost its majesty. I'm sure some of you have experienced these things, have you not? I'll rattle off a number of examples, but how about this? How many of you have watched a baby be born and you thought, this is a miracle of God? Until you know, the doctors come in and they explain the biology or until you've had a few, and, and oh, maybe, maybe because I understand the biology, it's not a miracle anymore. We can look through microscopes and look through telescopes. And because we have some tiny little inkling of how things work, we have this idea that it's no longer fantastic, it's just another fact. But the angels have been watching from the beginning, and they are still marveling. They're still desiring to see. So in other words, Christians, here's what Peter's sentence is trying to do. He's just pleading with us to be like the angels and to constantly long to look into and glean the glories of this salvation that God has worked in Christ. And friends, I just fear that we Christians easily fall into the same pattern as we do with things like birth and biology and science with our salvation. It becomes just another fact. And that's why Peter opens his letter with this long and unwieldy sentence praising God for his salvation. And that's why he closes the sentence by showing us that even the angels are still baffled by it. So we should regain some of our awe, as Isaac Watts would have us do in that wonderful old hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed? And did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Thy body slain, sweet Jesus, thine and bathed in its own blood, while the firm mark of wrath divine, his soul in anguish stood. Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in. When Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin. Friends, God's salvation, past and future, 
is worthy of praise, even while we suffer as exiles. And friends, if our sojourning as exiles, if our seasons of suffering and sorrow, if our familiarity with the message has led to the dimming of our wonder of the gospel, then we need to come back and hear Peter with fresh ears. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That is for all those who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do join with Peter in praising you for the salvation you have accomplished in Christ. Lord, asking you to help us to not be so caught up in the fact that we understand it, that we miss the glory. Would you help us like the angels to long to stoop in and understand these things better? And would you help us to do so as brothers and sisters, members of a local church who get to do these things together, that we would encourage each other, bearing one another's burdens and rejoicing with one another as well. Oh Lord, help us in these things we ask. For Jesus' sake, amen.